One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It features new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Welcome to the Open City Podcast. In this episode, we will be talking about the city and the sandwich. How did our love affair with this lunchtime favourite come about? And how has this had an impact on our cities and high streets? on the experience we have as we take our lunchtime walk or order in that sandwich delivery service, choosing from the many offers. The sandwich, of course, stands for so much more, reflecting changes to our working patterns, our commuting, high street life and societal behaviours. Does the evolution of the humble sandwich give us an insight into how we use the city, what we want it to offer us and what the future city might hold? I'm your podcast host, Lara Kinnear, and we're joined by my co-host Zoe Cave from the Open City team. And our special guest for this episode is James Medway, Associate Fellow of the Institute for Public Policy Research. He will be talking to us about how the economy and industry has shaped the city and how we live and consume within it. We will also go on to take a closer look at the impact COVID has had so far on our relationship with work, the city and our consumption of it. Finally, we will visit the 120-year-old cafe in East London, E. Polici's, with brother and sister Nev and Anna Polici. 37 years ago, the first ready-made chilled and packaged sandwiches, egg and cress, salmon and cucumber, were sold by Marks and Spencers. It was an outlandish idea at the time. Why pay for something you can make at home? But it struck something with all of us and captured a mood of the 1980s that carried on through the millennium. Convenience was king. Brett's search to the top and their domination of the London food-on-the-go market very much correlates with the industry changes that we saw from the 1980s onwards, so much so that arguably Pret is emblematic of the fast-consumer city. Optimisation, efficiency, standardisation, all of which commodify our lunchtime to generate an industry that creates profit from the busy urban professional lifestyle. Pret worked because it struck a chord with those that felt they needed to make fast and effective decisions as part of their daily routine. It worked because it relied on those who thought they did have a bit more disposable income, but felt that they didn't have enough time to make their lunch, so would buy it ready to go instead. In 2019, Pret turned over £710 million buying up competition and with no sign of slowing down. Until spring 2020. With the arrival of Covid, the UK locking down, offices closed and white-collar workers stayed at home and in just six months, Pret lost 10 years' worth of growth. Come the summer, the government 
begged people to save the economy by going back to the office to reboot the all-important food-on-the-go industries. I mean, we even saw subscription models. Pret even corralled loyal fans to sign up and become subscribers to save them. However, we also saw that the Financial Times was reporting a distinct lack of desire to open up the offices in the city, as it seemed many white-collar workers were actually pretty comfortable working from home. So, with the drastic changes that we've seen over the past few months, this episode gives us a chance to ask some questions. Firstly, how has the economy and industry shaped the city itself? And not only that, how has it shaped how we live, work and consume within it? Secondly, by zooming in on the well-heeled urban professional and to look at just how much of our city is catered to them as workers and consumers, we look to see how open the city is to those that don't fit the profile and their spending power. And lastly, now that COVID-19 has put the brakes on the fast consumer city, how might this slower pace and our re-evaluated relationship with work create a moment where we can rethink how we want our cities to be? So James, as an introduction, what has happened historically to mean our cities are as we know them, particularly London? It take the last 200 years, let's say, uh, from the Industrial Revolution. You know, the arrival of modern cities is as places where people can work initially in factories. This is why Manchester goes from being a, a village or a small market town, really, in the north of England to being the second city in the country in a very, very rapid period of time, very short space of time. You know, there's tens of thousands of people cramming into these really unpleasant, really appalling conditions that, that were being set up in the in the 19th century. That's a big shift in how people live their lives. This is the move from the countryside into cities that, that really hadn't happened throughout the rest of, of human history. I mean, there'd been cities around for a long period of time, but it wasn't mm-hmm. like the majority of people were, were living and working these things. And actually, it's only, frankly, it's only fairly recently the majority of humanity has actually started living in cities. You're talking the last 20 years or so. So that's, a, that's one enormous shift. But then there's changes in how people live in cities that as working patterns alter, as, for instance, you get the development of of mass public transport, you have people moving to suburbs, they're able to work in offices in city centres and then live much, much further out than they used to. You get the decline in in countries like Britain of uh, manufacturing. So you have often smaller towns, actually, uh, particularly in in England, associated with the the north of the country, that that, uh, enter a period of decline at this point in time, that there's a loss of manufacturing jobs, not necessarily replaced, and then gradually a move actually back into some of the city centres. So you get the larger places like London, Manchester to some extent, Birmingham, Bristol, places like this, suddenly get people moving back into the city centres after a period of moving out again. So, So how we live in cities has changed with the economy. And what we've seen... I think, and it's kind of speculative, but what we're seeing with, with, uh, with COVID-19 is an acceleration of some existing trends, um, particularly around the growing use of sort of digital technologies, this ability. And it was already there. There were already more and more people realising they could work from home and it might be better to work from home. What we've seen with the lockdown is loads of people having to work from home. And I don't think that's going to go away. And I think a lot of people will be doing it out of choice. And I think a number of businesses will be actually th- looking to save costs on having people in offices wanting people uh, to, to work from home more often than they have been and particularly that's for you know office work for white collar work this applies to so there's likely to be quite a shift there but that has an impact on the kind of cities that we've been living in uh, for the last at least 20 30 years or so and the kind of economy that gets sustained in city centers uh, across the whole country and what about the changes that occurred due to the outsourcing of industry can you tell us a bit more about how this had an impact on the economy 
deindustrialization it, it tends to get called. Uh, and in Britain, it was particularly dramatic. I mean, Britain it was, it was the place where the Industrial Revolution started. That once upon a time, if you go to the sort of 1960s peak, manufacturing employment is something around 40%, maybe a bit more than that. So it's, it's a very, very significant part of the economy. And it enters a, a period of rapid decline from the late 1970s, early 1980s onwards. Um, so this is a huge loss of manufacturing jobs, probably about 2 million or so disappear. And that's some of those jobs aren't ever really replaced. I mean, you do get a large number of people who are basically just unemployed for a very long period of time. But what happens over 30, 40 years is that a large number of those jobs turn into kind of service sector jobs of one form or another. So that that is some of that is movement into things like retail, some of that is moving, creating more jobs in things like banking and finance, not that many more in that particular part. Some of it is entirely new to the world, sort of jobs that wouldn't have existed 40 years ago. Like, I mean, there are now more people working in IT in this country than, than were ever working here as coal miners. So what does this mean for how we live in the city? You get this pattern of city centre living with what's often called kind of knowledge occupations. So occupations where kind of being next to lots of other people doing the same kind of work gives you a bit of an advantage uh, of one form or another. I mean, partly that's just like the fact you can talk to people and share ideas and this sort of thing is a kind of fluffy version of it. The other bit is is probably the the fact that people are, are working for very big employers and they prefer to get everybody in the same place. I mean, it's kind of the crude version of it. Um, so that's a big movement back into the city centres. And, and with this sort of movement back into the city centres, you get a kind of revival of city centre economies. So okay. you do start to get things like pret opens as a way yeah. of selling sandwiches to people who are now working. Well, and I, I, and this is all it, this is all um, quite a top line economic understanding of how the economy and industry shape how we live in the city. But what what does it actually look like if we were to zoom in and look at the working and consumption habits of these urban professionals, these sort of like knowledge sector workers? Um, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, it, from the with the deindustrialization, we see the service industry grow and cons- and cons- consumer habits and lifestyles in the city start to change. And you know, you know, come 1984, there's this unprecedented growth with the food to go industry. Particularly symbolic is is Pret, which becomes a very familiar site um, within our cities on high streets, in in train stations, town centres, um, and similarly with that catering to this this. Uh, white collar knowledge worker, we then see the rise of things like the private gyms, um, and and not the typical gymnasium or the boxing clubs that we saw before. Instead, it's much more along the lines of like Pilates, bar, spin, and I, this has a very real effect in what you see on high streets and in town centres. Not only the, the sheer concentration of them, um, but but how open it makes our city. So unless you have a very definite spending power uh, to match the likes of Pret and private gyms. The, the the city is suddenly a lot less open to you. What we then see, I think, is these urban professionals who make up such a small percentage, but their consumer power shapes huge swathes of our city. They they generate value and profit in a way that things like libraries and uh, other sort of like community spaces um, just don't. But then equally, when time and when our time and space changes because of COVID. What does happen to this idea of productivity if it has been shaping so much of our city and gen- and how we generate value from it? Um, you know, are we still desperately trying to optimize our time and remain these very highly productive workers? No, I can I can totally relate to that, Zoe. I think um, you know, making decisions as easy as possible in your lunch break is almost light relief to what you maybe have to do at your desk. So walking into Pret and and being familiar with your with the menu is sadly. Um, often 
the the choice that people make as opposed to going to the independent shop where you're not quite sure what the menu is and if you're trying to bring a colleague with you or you're having a meeting at the same time as getting your your lunch trying to make a decision about a, a, a unfamiliar menu sometimes is is uh, tips us over the edge but at the same time what a shame because um you know we we shouldn't be put off in that sense it, it, it almost makes me feel like we're getting lazy it is that thing of like streamlining and efficiency and internalizing that so that you become a very good worker streamlining efficiency is a big big driver here in that fairly narrow sense of what efficiency is because it's not just you personally want to make your time as efficient as possible right so you just cut out having to think too much about what sandwich you want uh, let alone having to make it it's also on the on the flip side of this is this is the disappearance of company canteens that this is the belief that you know why would you as an employer provide something where your employees can get food when you can kind of completely outsource this and dump the cost somewhere else and somebody else will sell your employees food instead. So it's a kind of, there's a, there's a, there's a process of rationalization, which I think kicks in or a particular kind of rationalization, which kicks in from the notably from the, the 1980s. And then suddenly you've created a space where you can try and sell people sandwiches instead. So there's a, there's a kind of a logic of a sort of efficiency behind trying to get people to, to work and behave like this. Uh, generally, but, but there's also that interesting bit which, which you touch on, Zoe, which is like how 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 our perception of time and use of time changes how we use the spaces that we're in. Basically, that once you think time is extremely limited and we must, you know, every single unit of time we have must be directed towards this particular goal. Therefore, we have to cut away everything extraneous. Like, can I make a sandwich? Do I have to think about what I'm going to eat at lunch? Suddenly, it changes how space is operating around us because mm. there is now a market for a standardized sandwich that you can buy absolutely everywhere. And if your perception of time changes, and, and I think one of the things, at least for some people, if you, to be honest with you, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively privileged set of people who've, who've had a, a kind of lockdown or experience where you can sit at home and, and it's, it's not as uncomfortable as if you have to go out and carry on working, right? not yeah. by a long way. So here I am with Nev and Anna from Ipolici's. Hey, Laura. Hi. So this is the cafe that I come to when I need a really good tonic, especially at the end of the week. We come up here on a Saturday with the kids. And she brings her own gym. <laughs> and yeah. you set the world to right. And we abuse your husband constantly. <laughs> yeah, that's why I come. Yeah, How long have you been here? Well, we were born here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, 1900. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was born upstairs. Yeah. Immigrants come over from Italy, my grandparents, should yeah. I mean? Like, I went to school around here, all my mates are from around here, and I love it around here. We I, I've love not moved here, out, we want to see the other two, because you've got yeah, because it's become trendy or whatever, trying to make a bubble. Which, fair enough, in EastEnders always been about anyone and everyone coming in. Yeah. And everyone's got into that melting pot. But she always maintains its character and its soul yeah, in EastEnders. Yeah, that's the great thing about EastEnders. Well, it's got a mix of everything. I think everything. it's kind of going now, though, now. So many little coffee shops and they open up. Well, I don't know how they do it, because I, I don't know where they get... Where, how they like, can keep the money flowing in. You so, see, we're a tiny little place, But yeah. we're pretty busy, do you know what I mean? And we're like, busy, like, but our overheads are extortionate. I know people don't yeah. believe it. Even just like in terms of just the produce, but nothing's cheap anymore, nothing's cheap, yeah? So 
I mean, so the fact that you don't have to pay rent. That's, that's, that's what saves us, you know. So, yeah. And we've got, oh, well, you, pay, you own it as if you've paid a million quid for it. Our grandparents moved here when it was the slums. My granddad dropped dead of TB at 43 and left my nan with seven children. And it was the slums, you know. So, yeah. And my granddad used to pay our dad told us the equivalent of, say, like 50 quid a week then yeah. to buy it because the fellow he worked for when he first came here didn't want it. So, in hindsight, we were incredibly, incredibly lucky and blessed. Right time, right place. Right there. No. In the summer, we saw the government calling for people to go back to the offices and buy their coffee to reboot the economy. So what happens to the areas of our cities that wholly or predominantly serve the professional services and knowledge sector, but are now deserted with everyone working from home? We're so glad we're not at the city or somewhere, Laura. Yeah, the yeah. rent they must have there is a fortune. Yeah. And they're empty. There's no one there. It's like a ghost town. It's not so, just the cafes, it's the suitmakers, it's the cobblers. Everywhere. Everywhere. You know? It is, it's absolutely, and they just seem to have forgotten. And surely it's all those little businesses that one after the other, like, you know, it's like a ripple effect, isn't it? Yeah. You know, kind of like, okay, you've got the big city guys, but they obviously go, they frequent the suit makers or the hairdressers or the, the cobblers or the whatever. It's a network. What you've seen under lockdown is because there's a whole bunch of people who have to go and work at home, there's an enormous shift. I mean, by the time you got to June, July this year, it was not far off that half the country was working from home, which is incredible. That's a huge movement. The question then becomes, does that, how much of that stays permanent? Clearly not all of it does. There are people going back to their offices. During that time, okay, half the country is working from home, half of it isn't. So that was already there. Um, but it's how much of that stays permanent? Because that is where you start to see, I think, the, the big spatial impact on towns and cities. That, that if instead of you going off to an office and then at lunchtime you go off and buy your sandwich, or at the end of the working day you go to some shop to buy something else, then this is, this is quite a major shock to particularly town and city centres that are built around retail, which is focused on what a working day looks like and how many people will be there at certain points in the day. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've still got the option to go back at the weekend, but if you're not there during the week at all, you're not going to be buying the sandwich. That means all the sandwich shops take a, a massive hit, and it's been quite widely reported that, that Pret and others have really suffered as a result of this. But there's also that shift on how we buy things, which is that already, I mean, it's quite clear, already people are ordering more and more from the internet. You don't need to go to uh, a high street to buy things in the way you used to you know, 10, 15, five years ago, to be honest. Um, so that was already happening to high streets. They were already under strain. If it's now the case that people aren't even physically in the high streets at any point during the day, that you are literally not going to be working there anymore because you're working from home, that's a, a so massive shock to, to retail. It's not going to be viable to try and run a sort of profit-making sandwich business catering for office workers in a city centre in the way it used to be if there aren't that many office workers in the city centre. I mean, there'll be some. And people will still be going to work. But my, my guess is there's a large part of this working from home will in fact stay in place, whatever happens with the, the virus from this point onwards. What will happen to urban life as we know it? Well, probably not in, this, in the same format it, it, it was before. I mean, to what extent will people choose to try and change their life? Now, frankly, that isn't going to be a choice that everyone is going to be able to make one way or the other. Like lots of things will just get imposed on perhaps most of us. But to the extent that people can make a choice about this, it can look quite attractive to say, I'll work from home more often. 
Uh, and a lot of the survey evidence you have basically says actually people quite like the idea of working from home less often. They like the idea of working less, funnily enough, and they like the idea of working from home uh, more often. So, so if, you, if they have some options around this now, then that, that I think is likely to prove very sticky. Uh, it's something people want to carry on doing. But that means that your city centres, and you're not just talking here about the city in London, you're talking sort of every city centre of a decent size, suddenly is going to be rather different because you're not going to have many people there. And if it's built around retail catering for people who are at work, then it's not going to function. Your high street, which was already suffering because people were already ordering more online, is really not going to last much longer as a place that is built around the idea of shopping. Unless you want it to just be in dead space, you're going to have to do something different with it. I mean, the government at present thinks that it would be a, a really good wheeze to get people to convert shops into flats and just move, you know, just treat it as if it's just somewhere extra to live. But this seems like, you know, there's a whole load of reasons why it's a bad idea. One of them is that actually these are really good functioning public spaces that people quite like. At the minute, it's a functioning public space because there's enough sort of private business interest that can sustain itself and therefore make the public space work. Take that private business interest away, which is you can't really run retail in the way you used to but the public space is still good. There's a case of saying, can we subsidise the public space to maintain it? And can we repurpose some of these shops in, in different creative ways that you can think of various different ideas? Can we open more libraries? Can we open art galleries? Can we do all sorts of different things with these otherwise empty spaces that may require much more public investment than we've been used to to get them to work? But there's clearly a public good here. Clearly people will want to socialise in some form with other people. No, do you know one thing that I think is so important that I hope we try and keep here, Noah, is community. Right, without community, I don't care where you live or whatever, I don't think you've got you've got anything. Not that you need to be nosy in one another pocket, but just to know... So we have so many young people, for example, that come, you know, because they come to work in London and they might be from, you know, you're from Ireland or they might be from up north or this, that and the other. And London, I should imagine, if you don't know, it must be a really overwhelming, pretty lonely place. So in here, we force people to talk here. Sometimes people don't want to and... To be well, honest, you, you read the signs when they don't want to. Sometimes we do have to be quite mindful. I think I said to you before that someone might have had a really bad day or lost someone or whatever. And you know, instead of thinking, "Oh, you're miserable," sod or whatever, we do have to be mindful that we kind of like lose. Oh, listen to this one. No, but listen, what's important in it is to keep. We try. So many lovely friendships have been made in here. Yeah. You know. Romance, and it's so important. Just that hello, to, especially at the minute. Just yeah. that smile, just that whatever. Yeah, do you know I, what I mean? I I'm getting sad. emotional thinking about it, but it's true, especially at the minute. We need to look after one another, governments. Yeah. Because without one another, what have you got? Nothing. But so they're sort of segregating people a bit. Yeah. Like, they, what's that saying? Something can divide. Separate and divide? No, there's that. Con divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. That's what they're doing. Dividing and conquering. That's what they're doing. It does hold a mirror up to potentially what we want from our public space because in the way that at the moment so much of our, our public space is so closely linked with commercial property and things like retail. So I think, James, you've mentioned before that, you know, it's, and it's becoming widely recognised that the the high street isn't just about people being able to shop there. It's so closely linked with um, so with all the social infrastructure that ties it together, but that, but that the retail becomes the thing that we almost like hang our hat on for public space, and so then it makes it sort of like well, actually, it's I almost find it quite hard to picture what actually a high street would look like if it didn't have shops, or what so much of London would look like if it wasn't offices and offices flats, 
and you know yes gyms sandwich places all of that so I think what else could you have there and what happens if our public space isn't so closely linked to being a consumer going to use the retail shops and commercial spaces you can start to get quite creative about some of this. I mean, if if you have very large office blocks that are empty, then then why not do vertical gardening? This sort of thing. You know, why why not start to really sort of think creatively about what you might do with some of this? Like I say, at the minute the, the push from government is to try and turn places into flats, which is a bit. This this is eating away at, at a public space. If, if you start to do this, there's a whole load of reasons why you don't necessarily want to do to do something like this. But we could start to think creatively. Or you have maker spaces that you're setting up, or you're actually providing more public facilities. You're opening new schools. If schools have to be socially distanced, you need more space for classrooms. So okay, let's like think creatively about where these places could be and how we can teach people, how we're going to arrange uh, all of this. There's a, there's a potentially quite significant public cost. To making that happen that the, what's happened I mean, it's happened for a long period of time but let's take the last sort of 30 40 years or so is that lots of what we treat as public spaces are basically run for a, a commercial profit one way or the other uh the pub is a classic example the pub is a social space it is run to make a profit uh and if it doesn't make a profit it has to close now if you have socially distant you have to impose social distancing for some period of time and potentially because you're moving to you know, tighter lockdown you have to just close the pub this means it isn't commercially viable anymore and that means you lose the, the social space so you, that starts to create if you think it's good to have those social spaces it creates a, a case for subsidizing the thing you should say yeah. okay actually we think it's publicly useful to have this whether it makes a profit or not therefore we will pay to keep this thing open and that means regardless of whether the pub is actually making a profit we think this is a socially useful space to have and therefore we'll pay some money to try and keep the thing going. And that, that is something that we might have to do more and more often with a lot of the social spaces we have if a kind of private enterprise model can't sustain them. And I suppose so much of London is um, every inch of space is you can eke a profit out of it. Lockdown was easing. You could go into spaces if there was a card reader there. So hence you, could, you couldn't go and hug your grand, but you could get on a packed tube and you could go and so uh, yeah you can go into and do eat out to help out with a with a full restaurant um so i suppose it's that does it actually hold up to can we create more spaces where we recognize the importance of having social spaces of that social infrastructure but we just don't there doesn't have to be a card reader present we don't have to be like eking out a profit from every social interaction exactly and that's quite a big challenge to, to how we've ended up running the economy for a good long period of time, which is that basically every social interaction we have should be able to produce a profit of some sort for someone at some point in time. And whether that's like because you're going out to eat with other people or you're, you're meeting with them somewhere else or you're exercising with them in the case in gyms, whatever it is. So, so every single social interaction suddenly is monetized. So, so again, potentially optimistically, that you could treat this as a shock to that way of running things. Mm. And that means that you have to try and find another way of doing this. And that means that there's a whole lot of social interactions that you're just not going to be able to monetize and turn into a profit in a way that, that has been attempted for a long period of time. We know that lockdown has put a huge strain on social ties, on mental health and well-being. But even before lockdown, was the way and the pace that people were living and consuming sustainable, whether that be sustainably for social reasons or for the environment? Was it good for our well-being, individually and collectively? 
I think that's that sort of immediate public health issue is slightly different to the longer term one, which is mm. more like a question of adaptation and how much adaptation do you need to do. I mean, New Zealand is interesting here. Well, well before the pandemic uh, broke out, they were already, the government was already committed to trying to introduce a sort of what they were calling a well-being budget uh, for how they were thinking about how government would spend its money. So in other words, instead of sort of saying the economy can boil down to his GDP, gross domestic products, and if this goes up, everything else basically is fine. Um, they wanted to take a more kind of holistic view of what an economy is for. So looking at things like how is people's mental health uh, functioning, how much time do people have to spend with their family, this sort of thing. And, and summarising all that in the sense of saying, OK, we're now going to try and set a budget for government which addresses these issues as well as GDP. So you get away from a very narrow focus on this sort of you know, this money value question and into a much broader one. So uh, New Zealand, the Scottish government and Iceland have all sort of banded together to try and take this approach. And I think, that, I think there's quite a lot to that. I think if we're, we're looking at a future where this drive to deliver monetary return immediately from every aspect of our lives and every bit of space that we have is of necessity somewhat wound back, like we're just not going to be able to do this. We have to think of another way to assess things. And so why not look at well-being and why not take a broader set of values as to what government thinks is really important about how the economy functions? Well, these things are really important to people. Why are they not treated as part of mm. a government's budgeting process, its long-term planning process? So, but if we, if we step back a bit and say, what is an economy for? What are our spaces for? Like, what kind of lives you want to live? Then you can get to somewhere where actually there's a whole lot of things we think are much more important, or at least as important as making GDP go up the whole time. So, so that would be, that's a very big picture. How do we rearrange how government thinks about the world sort of uh, end of it? But that I think would be, it would be a useful thing to pursue. Whether this government does that, I think is another question. And so I, th- I think I question how genuine the idea of well-being is when it risks affecting productivity. You know, the reality is, is that being served in 60 sec- seconds and eating a lunch whilst walking down, walking between meetings and scrolling and, you know, sort of like washing it down with a shot of turmeric and ginger, which all in all cost you probably £10, is actually really perfectly in line with what the economy prioritises, which is efficiency and productivity, which at the end of the day is a means of making profit. And so I think that I do think there is a shift at the community level and at the more informal level where we're questioning this type of capitalism. But as we are, um, I just don't see it changing at government and corporate corporate level. You know, if well-being does come in place at that sort of very like formalised and structural and and, um, top-down level, I just think it will be tokenistic or it will be certainly something that those with wealth can access. I mean, there is the, the, the... National statistics in, in the UK actually produce a, a measure of national well-being. And it's like 77.2 or something at the minute. And it, it just doesn't mean anything. Because <laughs> so what? I mean, it's gone up. There's the problem. Yeah. It's, it's just, so so it's, 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 it's having to be a bit less sort of superficial than, okay, forget this number GDP. Here's another magic number instead and it will go up. You yeah. know, it's like, it doesn't you work need that a way. Exactly. You need something a bit more thoroughgoing. I mean, what, what Zoe was touching on, I suppose, was, was also thinking about what does it mean to be efficient? At present, our version of efficiency is, is quite a narrowly defined one on like, are you using this space to maximise the sort of monetary value out the other side of it? Are you using your time to maximise the monetary value out the other side of it? And that's efficient in a really, really narrow sense, perhaps, if, if that's what you're doing, if you're optimising the space in this way. But then you, you miss a whole load of other things you might also want to do and might care about. So it's, it's having a, a broader concept of efficiency 
let's say, or, or placing efficiency as a value alongside other ones, like inequality or equality. The, the, you know, the experience of the pandemic has been wildly unequal. And you can see that it, you can see it in the figures, actually, that you know, if you were well off going into this a few months ago, you are now better off. Uh, as a result of it. And if you're worse off, you're now in a really quite desperately bad situation for a large number of people. That's the experience of it. You can see it on the experience of, you know, did lockdown mean you could stay at home and work from home and it wasn't too bad? Or were you still having to go out to work? There's a very dramatic sort of divide in, in experience there and, and potential increase in inequality, which is built into how our cities and towns are structured. I mean, most obviously yeah, exactly. in the housing market, right? But yeah. you can see it all the way through how we live our lives and how all the buildings we have and the spaces we have are organised like this. So if we're serious about changing things, then probably, and if people are serious about saying, oh, we're all going to be more socially minded, then definitely you want to try and do something about this as well. It's no good saying well-being's gone up for a few people, everyone else is worse off. So, it's like so this has to be evenly shared. So one of the interesting urban concepts that has, has been brought to the fore during, during lockdown is the idea of the 15-minute city. Um, it first came out in December. Uh, the mayor of Paris was using it as one of her major... Um, re-election pledges to make Paris a city uh, where you could get anywhere that you needed to in 15 minutes. What I really like about it is that it weaves together socio-economic spatial conditions and makes us think about them collectively and coherently, which is is rare when it comes to uh, the shaping of the city, because normally we, we are stuck in siloed systems where socio-economic and spatial is all separate. With the 15-minute city, you're thinking about a human being at the at the heart of it you're thinking about someone's journey from their door to where they need to get food to where they need to go and work to where they need to go and pick up their kids and so that layering together of of uh, someone's everyday experience of a city seems to hold a lot of what we've talked about together do you think there are that sort of concept gives us an approach that is worth exploring here in the UK um, and have there been any other urban strategies that you've come across that you think might might do similar? That, I think, is, is, is very much worth exploring because it, it starts to reduce the scale that we have to think about down to a level that, that probably most people would be rather more comfortable with. The, the, I mean, 15-minute city, if you're talking about London at this point in time, is like a wild fantasy. You know, it's like an hour or whatever. What's the average commuting time is massively larger mm-hmm. uh, than that. Even for people who live in London, there might be people who have to travel for an hour or more. To, to get into London to work. So, so it, it would force quite a re-evaluation of what a city is for and how we live our lives and, and where we all are. It would be all of us living in something closer to being you know, a traditional village jammed next to other villages rather than like here is one big city that we're all going to troop into the middle to try and uh, make the most out of. You know, the, the usual argument in economics is cities are good because of what they call agglomeration effects, that if you have lots and lots of things all together, this is more productive than if you spread them out. And that's the crude version of the argument. If instead you say, right, everything's going to be within 15 minutes of where you are, uh, then that breaks that up entirely. And you're going to have to, again, address what you mean by efficiency and what it means to live efficiently and well. And some of this is, I mean, some of this is going to be necessary because of, we haven't particularly talked about this, but it's there behind everything, which is the environmental challenges. That actually cities tend to be, how you count it, not too bad in terms of environmental efficiency. It's quite good to jump to have people living in relatively dense populations. But if on top of that, you're then also trying to get them to move a very long way to go to work mm. the whole time, then suddenly you're really 
losing out on the amount of emissions this costs, the amount of general resource use. If instead everyone can walk to work or stay at home, then you're back on the, the plus side of the environmental ledger. So, so the, there's, there's a need to integrate all of these different parts into how we might reimagine what urban life is like, uh, I think. And, and something like that is, is a good way to do it. In some ways, are we, um, are we almost going back to this idea of the suburb, but in a city? You know, thinking about your your ideal of the scale of economy um, or the economy of scale, we've all been living in our own local villages during lockdown, and a lot of people have really been enjoying that. So um, I just wonder if we can imagine a city that is well connected to many cities within them and how the economy might work to support that. Um, and just, again, bringing it back to the humble sandwich shop where we want to go and get our, uh, you know, delicious sandwich for lunch. Um, how, can we imagine them surviving and having a very um, fertile future in this concept of smaller segments well connected to each other? Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's a recurring theme in, in, in kind of, well, urbanism of, of, of one sort or another that you could have a city that is just a series of villages all connected to each other. The Garden Cities movement looks like this. You know, Hampstead Garden, Garden Suburb is built as, is intended to be a kind of village that's in a city. And uh, when Aaron Bevan was talking about building uh, council housing after the end of the Second World War, he was Minister for Health uh, and Minister for Housing. And he'd talk about oh, what he wanted in the new housing estates was to, to have something like traditional English village where everyone kind of lives together and there's, there's a butcher, a baker, and the guy who works in the office and they're all on the same street and that's kind of a nice sort of friendly environment for everyone. So it's a recurring theme that you could try and get this to work that has been, certainly in the last 20 years, really sort of blown out of the water by the idea that actually agglomeration is really good. You're going to have a big centre and everybody's going to be in that and then everything else is sort of somewhat left to, left to hang. So, so we... we, we it's not too hard to imagine how you might get out of this if you have cities organised more like this, more as systems of well-connected villages. Then, of course, there's going to be a space for a smaller-scale sandwich shop right? because that would be something that supplies their village. It's not like you have to sit whichever shop it is, Pret or something in the city centre, and wait for very large numbers of people to come past. You can operate these things on a smaller scale and potentially do it quite efficiently. And there's 15, yeah, 16 you know, places you can go to down, to eat yeah. or have a coffee. You've taken the time to come here, spend your money here. We're on it. You can yeah. go anywhere else. See, we don't travel a lot so, at Eastenders. No, we don't. But you it's me true. Cry. But they could have yeah. gone anywhere. Because I'll get people saying, oh, have you come from far, say to them? And they say, oh, no, not really. We've come from Old Street. Okay, that's fucking miles away. Yeah, <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? But, like... Because you passed yeah, well, yeah. 200 cafes in the way. But, yeah, do you know what I mean? But they come. But they come. And what an honour that is. Do you know what I mean? Testaments of not, you know, my mum, my dad, my grandparents, and you know, please, God, you send someone out of the smile, that's what you've got to do, yeah. They've got to be happy that they're, you know, it's, it's not a case of just, yeah, we yeah. run a business. You give but people it, good food. Yeah, but we, but we run a business, and you run a business, obviously, we've got to make some money and support our But it's not just about making a quick buck. Like, it works both you ways. Some people come, back, you know come in want... in a bad mood or something. And a lot of people would say you can put a price us. on that service. Yeah. The one that yeah. you're giving beyond the food, yeah. and and beyond you, the cafe. And we're... But like you, Lava, do you know what I mean? How lovely are you? We, we have a chat with you when you come in, do you know what I mean? We didn't know you from nowhere before. Yeah. Yeah. We've I mean? only but... just started understanding you, to be honest. I don't know what she's saying. She's had to write down all the questions. <laughs> Adding all of this up, what do we think? An open, more sociable, more 
um, economically sustainable for everyone rather than just some of us, what, what sort of open city will we have ahead? And in 10 years' time, is there any way to uh, take perhaps the optimistic view and the pessimistic view of where we might be in 2031? Well, the, optimistic, the, the pessimistic view is that we'll be by then on to our 15th wave, right? Uh, and it'll be, you know, just this sort of endless, never-ending, slow, steady decline of everything just getting worse and worse forever. Um, the optimistic view is, is that actually we would have successfully reinvented what a, a city looks like and how, what city living might look like. That, do you, that means more public spaces of one form or another, that a load of our high streets look quite dramatically different. They're no longer places where you just go to buy stuff or even buy things at all. That you've reopened parks, you've turned what used to be shops into you know, libraries, into public spaces of various, various sorts, into concert halls, into things that are maybe still have to be socially distanced and managed because... COVID-19 has become endemic and this is just how the world is. But it is being successfully run and managed in a way that's definitely of benefit to, to wider society. That you have more people working from home and you have more people working far reduced hours than they used to and therefore they have much more time to do a whole load of things that they like to do. And that you've reduced the environmental damage that cities cause as a result of being able to do all this. Now that's the sort of very optimistic version of where we might that's end up in really this time. So I think a slower, more social city isn't necessarily that obscure an idea. In the way that our cities are sometimes described as urban fabric, there are many different threads that weave, knot and come together in different frequencies and densities. So alongside the highly efficient, optimised, professionalised and standardised city, I think we need the unique and unexpected occurrences where the independent and one-off experiences fuel our personal and collective experience of the city. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing what it's been like for you and what you stand for and what, why you're here and why you're going to continue to be here. Much. You're like advertising us, you know what I mean? And you're like telling people about us. Well, so if you ain't been, come and try us out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. come and have a chat. And get come, a and, come and have yeah, a close sleep session. Come and have a chat. We'll have you know a that, that little phrase that people are saying, that's so simple, but it's so true. Just be kind at the minute. Yeah. You know, be aware that there's someone, you don't know what people are going through and what's going on. There's families. Do you know what I mean? People have lost their jobs and they've got mortgages and they've got kids. Can't be kind, and... be quiet. This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Selassie Satipa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher and our producer Ruby Maynard-Smith and the Open City staff Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave and Sean Milliner. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.